All right. Um, I'm going to start by saying uh, I'm going to do a very big disservice to uh, uh, everybody and the Lord today because I feel very under-equipped to uh, deliver this message, um, but I am in good company because uh, Paul also seemed to struggle with this, um, and we know how um, awesome Paul was. So um, as an intro, I want to ask you a question. What, if you had to describe to somebody how big the ocean was, what, what terms would you use? Would you, would you talk about the depth of it? Would you talk about how wide it is and at what point? Uh, would you talk about how long it is, that that even makes sense, how long an ocean is? Um, and it, it largely deals with where you're standing at, too, because if you're in the ocean, obviously you're going to talk about it a little differently than if you're on the shore or you're in Wisconsin and we can't even see the ocean. Um, so it's a matter of perspective, uh, which really relates to how we are, not what the ocean is. Um, but we, we have to understand that the, the size of the ocean, the, the vastness of it is, is very difficult to comprehend. Like people, people can say how deep it is. We, we hear about these deep sea submarines, some of which don't turn out too well. That, that go to the bottom of the ocean, literally the bottom of the ocean, the deepest part, and the things that they find there. And I, I, when I talk about the ocean or I think about the ocean, I always think then about outer space because if we talk about how deep the ocean is, like we can actually kind of quantify that uh, by saying, oh, it's this many miles deep or feet deep or it's this many miles wide or, or it contains this many gallons of water, but if we talk about those things, do we really understand how deep 35 miles is? Do we actually truly comprehend how many gallons, 13.4 trillion, I'm making up numbers because I really don't know, how many gallons that is? I can't, I don't, I don't know how you fathom that. That's an ocean joke. Um, but then you think about space, and it's, it's how far things are. Like, it's so far, infinitely far, seemingly, that we have to measure it in light. That, that's, that's crazy to me. So even things in our physical world kind of point to the vastness of God. And we, we have a trouble. I, I love the songs that we sang this morning, and I love Lance's... Uh, um, uh, the aspect of Lance's devotion because it talks about the power and the vastness of God and having a reverence for something that is infinitely bigger than you. Um, and the ocean and, the, and space, we can kind of quantify. Um, I, I actually have a little slide here of, this is a, um, back in 2014, the Hubble Space Telescope took this picture and um, apparently you can see better from space than you can from on Earth, go figure. But th this is of the universe, really. These are galaxies. And, and this is a real picture. This isn't like somebody designed it in some computer software. This is a real picture that the space telescope took. Uh, like, and, and here's, here's where our limitations come in because this is just a two-dimensional representation. Like there's a depth to it too. And, and 
it goes beyond the limits of the screen. Like if we, I if this was what I was looking at right now, and I turned around, I would see something different <laughs> that looked equally like that, right? Like this is big, big, but it, the universe still has limitations. Even scientists say that somehow the universe is like growing in size. Like it, I don't even know, understand that. So that's that's just kind of a a starting point here. Um, we're gonna read in Ephesians three. Um, I want to focus on two verses primarily, and that's going to be kind of what we base this on, but I would be doing a bigger disservice to Scripture if I didn't also include the prayer that Paul prays before these two verses. So if everybody can turn to uh, Ephesians 3 for me, um, verses 14 through 19 we're going to read. This is a prayer, and Paul's praying this based on on um, his knowledge of the Ephesian church and who uh, he knows that they are, what they know, what he knows that they know about the Lord. And he's praying very fervently here. So I'm going to read these, these few passages. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to get into the meat of this. It says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through the Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Lord, thank you for uh, your word and how infinitely rich it is, um, just speaking to your power, to your mercies, to your grace, um, to your salvation, to your love. Lord, we, we are striving to seek you here and now, and uh, I just ask that you bless the, the words that are spoken, um, that they come directly from you uh, and are not just a conjuring up in my mind. Um, Lord, we, we seek your spirit to be in us, uh, for your son to do a work in us that, that leads to renewal uh, constantly, consistently. And uh, just ask our, that our time here is, is spent wisely and well, um, and that those who are here who may be listening to it elsewhere uh, have a heart and ears to receive. Lord, thank you. We pray this in your holy name. Amen. So I'm going to focus here a little bit on the prayer because it really leads to what comes after. Um, there's a few points I'd like to make. One, like I already said, Paul is fervent in this. Like, it literally says here that he bows his knees before the Father. How many times have we come in our personal lives to our very knees in prayer? Like, usually it's like you're sitting in a comfy chair or you're laying in bed or, or maybe you're sitting at a table somewhere. Like, it's, it's kind of convenient for us. We pray often in that way. But to actually be on your knees is difficult. Like, that's uncomfortable. I, I mean, I know I'm getting older. <laughs> my, my knees hurt when I, when I get on them sometimes, even just to bend over to pick something up. But Paul, after all that he's been through, uh, he is, and, and we, we, we'll see this later, he's literally in chains right now writing this letter. And he is on his knees 
in chains praying for these people. And I would add that he's not just praying for them in the Ephesian church, but because this is scripture, he's praying for us right now. So this is his prayer for us. The next thing I want to point out here is that that even Paul in his praying is pointing to the Trinity. He, he's pointing to the fact that God is multifaceted, that his, his personality, his character comes out in, in a vast way. So he's praying to the Father concerning the Spirit that it may reside in our inner being and that it's made available through Jesus, what he's done, Right? So, speaking to God's vastness, God, God, the creator who made all the things that we just talked about, the, the, the ocean and, well, I just realized how um, might be difficult that is to read. <laughs> Sorry, guys. Um, the depths of the ocean, the vastness of space, all of that he created, right? So, by nature, we, we should assume that God is more vast than all of those things that we already can't comprehend because he's created those things. We speak to the spirit, which we know that scripture tells us that, that God is spirit. And spirit, the spiritual realm, is, is we, we, we have that connection, but do we truly understand how vast the spiritual realm is? And that is where God resides and what he is. Um, and then, speaking materially, we have Jesus, who, while he was at the beginning with God, he came down from heaven into physicality to meet us here. So, it is all-encompassing, and it's, I believe it speaks to God's vastness, just in, in Paul's prayer here. So, what's the reason that, that he prays this? that we may know and understand the mystery of his plans for us. We know that Jeremiah says that, that he has a plan for us, a hope, a future, and, and that resides in his plans for this universe. But in addition to that, he prays because he wants us to, be, to come into the full realization, think about that, the full realization how many things do you fully realize in life? Fully, completely, 100%. Oh, yes, I realize that this stand right here is black. I fully understand that. But the full realization of our privileges in Christ, think about that. A full realization of our privileges in Christ. Where do you even begin? We can start with salvation. We can start with, with him coming here to rescue us from ourselves. But that's only the beginning because there is more to it than what we're even reading here. The next part is how does he do this? It says here that it's according to the riches of his glory. According to the riches of his glory. Notice he didn't say with the riches of his glory. It's not a a means necessarily. He didn't say by the riches of his glory. He didn't say through the riches of his glory. He didn't say out of the riches of his glory. He said according to the riches of his glory. If I say uh, that this is the uh, 
gospel according to John. We know that John existed for a set period of time in this world, and that, that part of that time was spent uh, with Jesus by his side. But it was according to John. John only lived for that period. I believe what this is talking about is, is the varying dispensations. That's a fancy word for eras or ages or, or time periods that God has chosen and how he's chosen to interact with his creation. And we can talk about the, the pre-flood stage and how he dealt with, with that situation. We can talk about the, the um, law that came, or the, well, really the promise that came to Abraham. And then we can talk about the law that came through Moses. We can talk about um, the, the prophets. But all those things in those different dispensations, those different eras, are leading up to Christ. But since Christ rose from the dead and ascended to heaven, we have this new era, this new dispensation. And that is what Paul's talking about. According to the riches of his glory, his glory has been manifest in Christ, in Christ's entire life and what that means. But now his glory is, is also being manifested in other ways. And we'll get to that in a little bit. But I want to, I want to, highlight that point that according to is with is in relation to how he's choosing to interact with his creation at this point uh, the next part is rooted and grounded these two things sound alike but they're really not like if you think about what it means to be rooted like a root of a tree or a plant but then grounded in something really talks about like a foundation something that's built so we have this organic material and we have this kind of man-made material or constructed material. And, and Paul's combining these two things to, to really talk about the fact that the roots are organic and they provide nutrition and life, but the grounding is a built foundation that's providing stability and strength. So, so these two things are coming together. And what does he say that we should be rooted and grounded in? Love. Love. So not just with Christ, but with one another. So there's this vertical and horizontal, again, this vastness. It's, it's going every way, right? All right. Here's some of the meat, <laughs> the dimensions. Verse 18 says that we may have strength to comprehend with all the saints, everybody, everybody that exists inside the Lord, to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth. I thought that geometry taught me that there's only three dimensions in space, right? Width and length and height, right? But Paul here adds a fourth. And if you, like, sometimes, like, I'll read this and I'll try to hash them different ways. Like, okay, breadth and length are, maybe they're kind of the same. Um, and depth and height are kind of the same, but it really depends on like how you like are looking at the thing, right? Because if you go like this, it could be different. I don't know. But he's not talking here. This is a trick. He's not talking here about geometry. This isn't geometry that we're talking about. This is eternality. Th yes, this is vastness. I... I have, this is why I struggle 
doing a service to the scripture because, and I think Paul does as well, because he, we're trying in human terms to put God in a language that is finite. It's within the box, but God is infinite. And I think there's, there's something that um, Harry Ironside said uh, that I think helps talk to this. He recounts a, uh, uh, actually from the Napoleonic era when the French troops were in Spain. He recounts a story. He says, you remember that Spanish prisoner whose bones were discovered when Napoleon's soldiers opened the prison of the Inquisition? There, in an underground dungeon, they found the skeleton of the prisoner, flesh and clothing, all since gone. But the remnants of an ankle bone with a chain attached to it were still there. There upon the wall they saw cut into the rock with a sharp piece of metal across. And above it in Spanish, the word for height. And below it, the word for depth. And on one arm, the word for length. And on the other, the word for breadth. As that poor prisoner of so long ago was starving to death, his soul was contemplating the wonder of God's purpose of grace. And to him, the figure of the cross summed it all up, the length, the breadth, the depth, the height. This is the grounding and rooting in love. This is what we should be grounded and rooted in, is the love of God in this way that, that we are constantly contemplating and comprehending, attempting to at least, considering the ways of him who's dealing with us in grace and mercy and love. That That is a vast topic. Lastly, in this section, the fullness. In verse 19 it says, to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Even that, to know what surpasses knowing. That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. I don't know about you, but I'm finite. I, I am one single cup. And Paul's praying for us right here and right now that, that I and you and your finiteness might be filled fully with all the fullness of God. If, I think if that actually happened to me, I would explode. Like I would cease to be. I don't, I like, I'm literally speechless. I don't know how to even describe that. Filled with all, all, that's everything, the fullness of God. Uh, Warren Wearsby related a, a simple story of walking along the ocean shore and, and him uh, with a, a fellow believer and, and the guy picked up a seashell, a little tiny seashell, and he threw it into the, the tide and as the waves washed over it and took it out to sea he said filled with the fullness of the ocean we don't have to understand this we don't have to comprehend completely we just have to be filled we just have to be empty enough of ourselves to be filled with him who is that vast.
And at times, there's certain things that come into our lives from the Lord, certain ways that he interacts with us that are different than other times. It's that sea churning in and out of that shell, different components, different molecules of, of water coming in and out, in and out. And that's what Paul's praying for us. All right, let's move on. Here's the real meat of it. If the last part wasn't meat, this is the meat. Because this is the benediction. Does anybody know what benediction means? Ending? Who said that? Blessing. Blessing. It literally comes from uh, benedicere, which is Latin for a well-saying or to bless. It's Paul's wrapping this all up. A lot of times, like a priest or or a pastor will will say at the end of a sermon or or a little benediction that um, so go out and do really great things, right? And this is how Paul's choosing to wrap up his his prayer here with a benediction. So we're going to read this now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all. That's a mouthful. That we ask or think according to, there's according to again, the power that works in us. To him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and forever. Amen. I have to read it in another translation. That was the NKJV, by, by the way. I have to read another translation because, like, exceedingly abundant whenever you get adverbs back to back to back to back it's kind of difficult to understand what exactly it's saying exceedingly abundantly above all (laughs) that's a lot exceedingly abundantly above all the nlt new living translation says now all glory to god who is able through his mighty power at work within us to accomplish infinitely more than we might ask or think Glory to him in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever. Amen. So NLT, which is usually a pretty good, easy reading translation, uh, plain language, says infinitely more. Infinite. We kind of know what infinity means, right? Kind of. We can sort of conceptualize it. But do we know how long? Like, can we count to it? No. So we can't really quantify it. It just means it doesn't end. Warren Wearsby kind of make, puts this in, in a, a, uh, uh, another way, uh, summation, that breaks it down a little bit more. Do I have that one? I do. No, not that one. I'll just read it. We'll come back to it later, too. Wearsby says, Now to him that is all, there's kind of a few, there's a stanza with, with five lines. The first line says, now to him that is all, now to him that is all, able to do all, above all, abundantly above all, exceedingly abundantly above all. So he breaks it down this way to show how much Paul is striving to actually put the vastness of God and, and, and the riches and power that he has, that, that Paul's talking about, into some kind of perspective, Paul is striving here because he's, he, he seemingly wants to use every single word that he can think of 
that just lumps it on top of each other. You know, just keep going, pile more on, because that's what it is. And, and when you stop, just pile another one on, and then you think it's good and pile another one on. Like, Paul is struggling to comprehend this himself because it is that vast. <clears throat> what we're talking about here is God's glory. I like that Lance talked on, on the Lord's Prayer and that his kingdom come and his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Heaven is vast. I don't think we comprehend that either. But heaven is vast. And the same power that resides there, we're to pray for it to reside here. The vastness in some finite shell. God's glory and his power is the crown jewel of the kingdom. Do we know what a crown jewel is? Anybody? It's, it's, a, it's a big jewel a lot of times uh, uh, from antiquity, the ancient civilizations all through, even now, because um, who's wearing uh, the, 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 the thing in England now? Who has that thing? Charles? <laughs> um, when, when Queen Elizabeth was still here, she wore it. It had like this fancy looking cross. It was all silver, had a diamond in the middle. Uh, the, that diamond was the crown jewel. Um, and any king or queen throughout the ages has some kind of jewel that signified what their reign was, right? Sometimes it was a red ruby. Sometimes it was a green emerald. Sometimes it was a diamond. Some, it could be anything like that that they saw value in that, that they thought was worth something that represented their kingdom, their reign, their rule. God's power and his glory are the crown jewel. When we think about the vastness of him and what he is, the riches that he has to bring to us, the, the, the access that we have to him it is beyond beyond what we can imagine. And that is represented in that crown jewel. So that power, that glory is, is not geometric. It's not, it's not that finite jewel. It is vast. It is eternal. I think the other thing that we need to focus on is that it, Paul says that... Uh, Paul says that it's above all that we ask or think. When I think of what asking means, I think of prayer, um, and I think of what Jesus said when, when he said about asking and seeking and knocking, and that what James said too, that we have not because we ask not. To me, it invokes a prayer, and, it's, and prayer is always specific. It's not some vague concept. It's specific. We come to him to ask specifically for something or that something happen. It's defined and it's personal too. But to think, think is a much broader topic, right? Like if I think of something, I don't necessarily pray that, pray that thought, right? A lot of thoughts come into my mind and we're told that in scripture that we're to take our thoughts captive and, and give them over to the Lord. And a lot of times that's really hard. Like I'm Definitely not good at that. Um, but, but thinking is general and fluid. It moves and it's very vague. We, we don't necessarily know, understand how the thoughts come into our minds, but 
But he's saying here that, that everything that we ask in prayer, the specific things that we come to God about that, that we're crying out for, but also the things that we just randomly think about, that it goes beyond all of it. What he is, what he's willing to do, what, what his riches and his glories are, are beyond all of that. And that he can work that in us. And I think that's what this is really talking about. That we have access to that vastness. That it's not just about being filled, because even if we're filled, there are certain times when, when we are fleshly and something creeps in and pushes some of that, that ocean out but to actually be used by him and to believe that he's able to accomplish anything, anything. So back to this according to thing, I think it's important to talk about the according to again because we are in this dispensation of grace. Right now the church is is being, is represented by grace. We who are here, who who put our faith in, in Christ Jesus, are, are saying that we have been covered by his grace, his blood, through faith. And that's what makes us his children. And I think what, we, what we're really talking about here uh, in according to his power are three things. And, and Paul actually talks about these things earlier in Ephesians. In chapter 1, he says that it's according to Christ being risen from the dead. So it's not in the death of him, although that's very important. But Paul also talks in, in 1 Corinthians in chapter 15 at length about the power that the resurrection has. Because like if we think about now, like think think about that. Somebody was dead and they came back to life. Like we can like resuscitate somebody uh, in the emergency room, but but that's not the same thing. Like Lazarus was dead for how many days? <laughs> and he was brought back to life. When was the last time we heard that, that uh, a medical professional did that? It's not heard of. And, and in ancient cultures, somebody bring, being raised from the dead was like something to be attained to. They realized the vastness of that. The, the infinite, don't even know what to call it, <laughs> power that that is. It is big. That's a big deal. So... Paul talks about that in, in chapter 1 of Ephesians, that Christ raising from the dead was testament to that power, according to God's power for this age. In chapter 2, he, he goes beyond that and says that reconciling the Jews and Gentiles, this is where he talks about that wall of hostility. He, he says that there was a wall of hostility, and we know in Romans 2 that, that we were hostile towards God before we knew him right? We were at war with him. What Paul's saying here is that that wall of hostility between us and God was removed when Jesus came. And not just between him and us, but between all of us. No matter what background we came from, no matter what we were in our old selves, no matter what we did back then, it does not matter that was torn down, just like the veil was ripped top to bottom. It was torn, and now we have true unity in, in, in this world, in the Lord, in the church. 
At the end of chapter 2, he also talks about the spiritual temple that he's building. That, that this church, it goes beyond walls. If you remember in the Old Testament, the, the um, tabernacle was handed down uh, as a design, and it was a tent, and they moved it from place to place to place, and wherever they went, God was. But then they built the, the temple after they came into the promised land. They built the temple after hundreds of years, and now God has a fixed permanent place that he resides and then after that got destroyed, they built a second temple. And now, now the Jews are talking about building a third temple. But we know that God isn't, it, the vastness of him, it goes beyond the temple walls. We're told that we can worship him because he's spirit, because he's truth. And we worship him as such. We worship him wherever we are because we are the temple. Do you not know that you are the temple of the living God? That's what Paul wrote. And now in chapter 2, at the end of chapter 2, he's talking about this spiritual temple that he's building up. Each one of us, a stone in this temple being built and assembled for what purpose? What purpose would he use such a spiritual building for? Anybody? To worship him in spirit and truth, right? Yeah. But what is the focus of our worship? Even worship isn't the end of it, right? Because worship is to something or somebody because of something. So why would we even worship? Anybody? God's glory. We worship him because he's worthy. Because of the vastness that he is, because of, of the infinite nature that he has, because of, of his loving kindness and his character, we worship him to that end. Not because he gives us things, not just because he died on the cross for us, but because he's worthy of it. And the, his glory is what he wants, like, just like Mark said, his glory is what he wants to indwell us with. And I would argue that he has done that already. That the shell on the shore, the cup that, that is attempted to be filled, uh, the, the inner being, our hearts have already been won, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, have already been won for that purpose. Just like uh, uh, in, in the Old Testament when they built the first temple, when Solomon finished that first temple, and he he prayed and he dedicated it to the Lord and the Lord's presence came into the temple and filled the place that, that so much so that the priests had to like evacuate. They're like, I, we can't even stand here anymore. He's already done it in us and he wishes to do the same. The church I'm going to refer to as a diadem. A diadem is simply a crown that holds something else. If, if uh, again, going back to, to a crown in, in ancient times or, or even in recent times, uh, the, the thing that, that um, Queen Elizabeth wore was called, actually called the diamond diadem because it had that very large diamond in the center of it. The diadem is represented by the church. We are to hold that crown jewel of the Lord in it prominently. 
and that is what defines it. The diadem doesn't take the place of the jewel. It doesn't, it doesn't push it out of the way. It doesn't hide it. It puts it prominently, proudly on the front of it to represent what the Lord is. So the power and the glory should be resting in the church. We are the setting of that, that crown jewel. And, and it can't, that crown jewel, notice, it, it doesn't go in like a bag or a box and get kept on a shelf. It doesn't go under a basket or a bushel. It gets put prominently on the thing that God has, has constructed and is constructing to proudly portray who he is. I've said it before just a little bit ago, but I want to reiterate this. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead, the same power that reconciled man to God and Gentile to Jew, the same power that is assembling this very church is yours for the taking. It's yours. You already have it. We can think about uh, some biblical examples of, of what this looked like. And we can think about really big ones, obvious ones. Um, three that come to my mind, the Red Sea crossing, right? What, what did Egypt represent? What did that bondage represent? The world and what were the Jews in? Slavery, yeah, slavery. And, and we take that as, as them being brought out of that is, is being brought out of this worldly state, out of the bondage of sin and death that we were put under with the curse and into salvation, right? But God did it for his glory because he's worthy. He could have easily, easily taken uh, Israel way north, up through that little tiny uh, uh, isthmus between Egypt and Sinai and led them straight into Canaan. He didn't. He led them to the shores of the Red Sea. Why? To show his glory. We can think about the crossing over the Jordan as they come into the promise, right? They, they were coming into an inheritance that God told them a long, long time ago to Abraham. Hey, this land right here, this is going to be yours. Your ancestors are going to be here. I'm going to make a great nation out of you. And here comes three million people out of the desert. And, and they're, they, they could have easily... In fact, God tried to convince them that they could have easily come into uh, the promised land in numbers, and they were too scared to do it. They had something holding them back, and then they spent 40 years in the desert. This time, when he, come, when he brings them in through, he brings them around the other side, across the Jordan. On top of that, it wasn't low tide. The Bible says that it was high. The water was over its banks. And they're told, walk across it. Now, the, the fox isn't super wide, but it's pretty deep, right? And let's say like uh, in May or something, when, when all the, after all the snow has melted for sure, and it, it's at its highest, I go out and tell you, okay, we're going to go across the river now. Not by the bridge, not on a boat. We're going to walk across it, right? That's the time that God told them to cross the Jordan. And what did he do? Just like with the Red Sea, he split it. And they walked through. We can also think about David and Goliath. And that's a, that's a pretty prominent one. But do we understand what that means? This, this Goliath, this Philistine, 
was who, who the Philistines represent sin in our lives, those little prickly thorns that stick in us that we don't seem to be able to get out from time to time. Here comes Goliath challenging the entirety of the Israelite army. And David, a boy of 14 with five stones and a sling, comes up and beats him. That's triumphing over sin. This big thing that you have in your life that, that you think is insurmountable, you have power over. Through God's grace, you have power over it. But we can also think of some subtle ones, things, the stories in the Bible that we don't quite get how sometimes can relate to something like this, to, to God's vastness, the riches of his, his treasures. Here's three. Elijah and the widow of Zarephath. If you don't recall the story, Elijah leaves his very small town goes to the region of Sidon, which is the enemy at the time, the heart of Baal worship, to reach a Gentile widow and her son. And there's a famine in the land, and she is there with her son with basically a donut and says, this is all we have left. And Elijah says, just let me get a morsel of it. And she's like, I can't even spare that. And he's like, just trust me. And they live on that for days and days and days and days. The faith to reach the lost. If we think that we are, are this big, we're going to stay that big. I just think of, of what uh, the spies in Numbers before they went into the land and they said, we were like grasshoppers in their sight. They didn't say that. You said that. If you think that you are a grasshopper, you are going to be a grasshopper. Now, this isn't some like mind over matter type of stuff. This is simply the realization that God has more for you than what you think he does. He is infinitely vast. He is infinitely rich. He has the full resources of his kingdom in heaven that was way bigger than we ever think on tap for us, each and every one of us. And guess what? It's inside of us right now. Elisha, not Elijah, Elisha, and the floating axe head. And we read that story because there's some prophets who are chopping wood, and the axe head flies off into the water, and what does it do? It sinks, of course, because it's metal. And, and Elisha's like, oh, no worry. <laughs> and after some, some him and hauling from some people, the axe head floats. So they can find it and they can go about their work. And you like you read that and you're like scratching your head like, what the heck? Like, okay, that's cool. It's a miracle. But like, what does that mean? Have you ever lost something? Like not just physical, but like a piece of yourself? Or like, man, I used to do all these cool things for, for, for the Lord. I, I used to do that. I have all this old fruit that's now like eaten and forgotten about. And I've lost it. It's like there's no new fruit. Guess what? God's power fully is inside of you. There's no excuses that you need to make to, to remember the good old days of when you worked for the Lord. His mercies are new every morning. He will give you the strength you need for each day to do and to will his will in you. Last one, 
Nehemiah building the walls of Jerusalem. Tobias and what was that other guy's name? Sanballat. Thanks, James. Sanballat and Tobias were, were uh, detractors. Nehemiah was zealous to go and accomplish something for the kingdom. Now, they're under exile in Persia right now. So he makes the trek in like 30-some days or whatever it was. It was, it was a pretty long trip all the way to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls because they found out that there were people that didn't want them to be building the temple and re-inhabiting Jerusalem. So he wants to rebuild walls to protect what is. And Samballot and Tobiah did not like this. They hated it. And they mocked Nehemiah over and over again. But he persevered. He overcame. He said, no, this is for the Lord. This is what he's doing. This is a noble cause, and I'm going to continue in it. And they fought, or well, I should say, they carried a sword in one hand and a shovel or a tool in, an, in the other. As they're working to rebuild, they're, they're ready to defend. Do you let people become detractors in your life? Are there detractors in your life? And how are you allowing them to have power over you? Because guess what? That power that they have over you is nothing compared to the power that lives in you. You have the full riches of heaven at your fingertips residing in you right now. We can look in the Bible, but we know that Hebrews teaches that there's a great cloud of witnesses. And we've had 2,000 years since Jesus uh, uh, ascended to heaven, right? So we have all of these saints throughout the ages that also speak these same exact things. And, and you can talk about George Mueller, who, who uh, talking about prayer, where he's running the orphanage, and, and he, he, they run out of, of food, and right as they're praying, <laughs> this, is, this is like brings tears to my eyes, right as he's praying for, for more food, uh, the milk truck breaks down outside. And the guy comes in and is like, hey, um, I was making this delivery. I'm not going to get there. The milk is going to go to waste. Do you want it? And he's like, praise God. Right? We can read about Andrew Murray in South Africa and the miracles that the Lord worked there. One of my favorite examples, and Liz and I uh, and the kids just listened to this, uh, this book um, on our vacation this summer, God Smuggler, about Brother Andrew um, a Dutch missionary who uh, brought Bibles to the behind the Iron Curtain, as he says, into Eastern Europe and Russia during the Cold War. Countless times, and, and Brother Andrew had to learn this a lot of times through much fear and trembling to trust in the Lord in very dire times because th the communists did not like Christianity. It went against everything that they believed. And he said that uh, on numerous times that he has stories of, of them um, uh, trying to get a, a Volkswagen Beetle full of Bibles across the border into Czechoslovakia or, or some other Eastern European country. And all he prayed, he learned to pray, was, Lord, you've allowed in the past for blind eyes to see, 
I pray that now you allow seeing eyes to be blind. And the police would open up the trunk, see the Bibles there, say, okay, you're free to go. Countless times, over and over and over, crazy. crazy. There's no, absolutely no earthly reason why that would happen. None. What Brother Andrew likes to talk about a lot is called the royal way. The royal way says that a king's servant doesn't have to stoop. Stooping means groveling. Stooping means, means begging. We don't have to beg and grovel for what has already been given to us. When Paul says that all things are ours, this is what he's meaning. When Brother Andrew was in missionary school in, in Scotland, he, he relied solely on his tuition to be paid for by other people because he had no money, none. And he put that in the Lord's hands. He, he recounts a story where he was months of reusing and reusing the same razor blades, right? Stropping them to make them sharp. And he's like, it's on the last leg. I can't strop this anymore. There's just nothing left. Toothpaste is the same thing. He, he's squeezing the tube of toothpaste, cutting it open, scraping it out, using little, uh, little by little, less and less each day, just so that he could get through. And he's like, Lord, I'm at the end. Like, I can't do this. Tuition isn't coming in. I have nothing. And he's, he's at the end of his rope in this, in this way, and he wants to so badly just call somebody. Call somebody. Say, hey, I need this. He's walking along. He sees a coin on the ground. He picks it up, and he's like, this will get me at least X number of razor blades, maybe half a bottle of toothpaste, something. And he puts it in his pocket, and immediately he has no peace about it, about even keeping the thing. And then up walks one of his, his friends who he knows who, who says, Andrew, I have nothing left. I, I, need a, I, I don't even have any food in my house. Like, do you have anything? And he reaches in his pocket and he gives that coin. And he said as it was going out of his hands, he was unburdened and he had peace. And when he returned home that same day, he sees the mailman delivering checks. And he said even before he got the, or the um, delivering mail, he, even before he got to the mailbox to get the letters out, he knew what was in it. He knew that the people that, that were already giving him money, that have given him money for years, it was right there. He opened it up. It was his full tuition. It was his full uh, uh, provision for razor blades and toothpaste and food and everything I need, more than what he even thought was going to come. It was there. That's the power that we have. Not because of us, but because of him. What is the purpose of the church, and how do we become that diadem for his, for his power, for his glory? I think the way that we manifest this is, is in the calling that Paul has for us right after this. I don't have it up on the screen, but I'll just read it. In the very first uh, couple verses of, of chapter 4, he says, I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. He wants us to live up to all of that that he just prayed for us, that he's 
uh, blessing us with, he wants us to live up to it with all lowliness and gentleness, lowliness and gentleness, to be humble, to walk softly, with long-suffering, that means patience, to suffer longly, just like the Lord has suffered for us, bearing with one another in love, that wall of hostility has come down, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, and there it is. We can't be that diadem as a church if we don't have unity in this body. The diadem cannot uphold that crown jewel, the glory of God, if it's fragmented and in pieces. This is why division, divisiveness, uh, uh, derision, all of these things that Paul so often uses to say, hey, don't do these things, is why they are so bad for the church. They detract from God's glory. So the choices that we make, the actions that we have, because of God's infinite vastness, all that we do when we are in him echo throughout forever. What we do for him now will be brought into heaven. What we don't do for him now won't. So I want to put what Wearsby said up here, and I want to make this our benediction right now to help us to, to fully realize the fullness of God and the riches of his glory. Now to him that is able to do all, above all, abundantly above all, exceedingly abundantly above all, Lord, you are rich, and you are vast, you are infinite, you are eternal, and you are filled with love, loving kindness, grace, mercy. And Lord, you've given all of this to us through your Son, at work in us through your Spirit. Lord, we, we pray that as we go from here, that we take this as an encouragement, as something that builds us up for the mutual benefit of your church, that we may hold up your crown jewel, your glory for all to see, that we do not keep it under a bushel or a basket, that we do not hide it, but that we let it shine and radiate, that others may see it and be awed by, by your majesty. Lord, just uh, bless the people that are here, those that have heard this, and, and just work in their hearts to comprehend the fullness of who you are and what you do and what it means to be your children. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.